This is The Guardian. Hello and welcome to The Guardian Football Weekly. Sevilla win the Europa League as they do every year seemingly. Jose's winning run in European finals is over. Was it the worst game ever? Is that recency bias? Was Anthony Taylor man of the match or is that just jingoistic nonsense? Either way, a half-decent year for Gonzalo Montiel and a wonderful moment for Jose Luis Mendelibar. Perhaps we'll all peak at 62. There's an FA Cup final to look forward to. Can Manchester United end City's treble chances? There's some transfer stuff. The Chelsea exodus begins. Poster Coglu to Spurs might be a thing. And Mark Clattenburg gets to say, Gladiators, you will go on my first whistle. All that plus your questions. And that's today's Guardian Football Weekly. On the panel today. Barry Glendening, welcome. Hello. Hello, Lance Sivitson. Good morning, Max. Hello, Nikki Bandini. Hi, Max. And I don't even know if we've got him for the whole of part one, but uh, we've got Sid Lowe for <laughs> now in a hotel room in Budapest. Hello. Good morning. Have you looked on the map to work out exactly where in Budapest I am? Where well, yeah, Sid is sitting with a, a hotel room with the map of Budapest behind him for those of you who weren't on the Zoom call before we started. Sorry, yeah, that was a really um, pointless thing to tell you. Yeah. <laughs> That's all right. Uh, so let's do the Europa League final then first. Severe winning 4-1 on penalties after a 1-1 draw with Roma. They've won every Europa League final they've played in winning seven out of seven all in the last 18 years. Uh, no other side has won more major European finals in the 21st century. Dale says, is there any better things those on the pod could have done with the three days we all dedicated to watching this final? <laughs> was that genuinely the worst European final ever? Also, was it genuinely the longest European final ever? Uh, Dan King, the journalist, saying, poor game this, should have gone straight to penalties without even normal time. Um. Sid, was it that bad? I didn't mind it. No. They, well, I mean, I say no. Obviously, in some ways it was. But no, in the stadium it wasn't. I, I suppose because you've got the, the tension of it, the sense of occasion, the sense that every time someone gets anywhere near the goal, which admittedly didn't happen a huge amount, there was the, kind of the feeling that this, this is the moment. And I suppose when you've got a game where not very much is happening, you feel like any, anything that does happen will be decisive. That will be it. Uh, I mean, you know, when Smalling hits the bar in the 147th minute of this of this interminable game, um, that, that you know, that could have been it. All the, you know, the other moments when it just about happened, it could have been it. I didn't think it was that terrible, but that was partly the tension of the stadium. It is true, though, I must admit that the thing that most struck me being in the ground was that every time I looked down, there were at least a dozen people in the technical area of the on the front of the Roma bench. <laughs> <laughs> they had eleven on the pitch and eleven in the technical area as well, like playing a little small-sided game in there, all of their own. Yeah, we had a lovely question from uh, a guy called Ian who said, "Are there any stats on the distance covered by the Roma bench tonight, and how do they compare to the how do they compare to the starting eleven? Nikki, you tweeted that you thought it would be ugly this game, but. I don't know if you thought it would be this ugly. I think Sid actually referenced it in one of his preview pieces that he wrote. I mean, Mourinho's um, bench for Roma have been like this all season. It's It's been quite clearly a deliberate tactic to sort of draw attention to the bench and, and the fuss that's going on there because that takes the pressure off your players in some way. And we know Mourinho's about this. He's been doing something like that ever since he's been at Chelsea, finding ways to deflect the attention off his players to to, to, to lighten the load on them until he decides to throw them under the bus anyway. Um, no, I, I, I think I... I I expected a, a not particularly thrilling game. I will say that I expected a not particularly thrilling game between Sevilla and, Ju- and Juventus in the second leg of their semi-final. It turned out to be a really entertaining game. So sometimes you can be surprised, but Roma have not played 
entertaining football most of the time under Jose Mourinho. What they have done in the Cups is played effective football a lot of the time. It is a brilliant moment for Mendeleeva, right? 62. Jose had won more European trophies than he had managed European games, you know, before the game. When Mourinho won his first with Porto, Mendelibar was was managing Lanzarote in Spain's Segunda B, which is which is, I mean, we tend to refer it to as to it as the third tier, but it was a third tier divided by four twenty team groups, so it's anywhere from the third to the seventh tier of Spanish football. Um, he's got actually a fantastic career. I think I, I did the I did the stats, and I can't remember what it was. Like. It's either nine hundred and sixty five or nine hundred and fifty six. My mind can't remember which way around those numbers went. But that was his nine hundred and sixty fifth game last night. Mendeleeva and his first final. He has had over 400 games in the first division, so he's not a total nobody. But it is true that he's always had clubs at the other end of the table, which is one of the reasons why he turned up at Sevilla, because this is the amazing thing about this. Sevilla brought him in to rescue them from relegation, which he's done. Um, He's been in charge for 16 games and only lost two of them. He's now won the Europa League. He made a lovely line last night because I think there has been a sort of a sense of discovery of Mendeleeva, which is... A little bit false because everybody knew him. Everyone thought he was entertaining because he's very direct. He's very kind of he's potty mouthed. He doesn't, he, he, you know, he, he doesn't mess about. He's 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 straight to the point. And he, he and, but there has been this idea of kind of discovering him. And, oh, he's actually quite good. And a little bit like, is he really the man for a club like Sevilla? And he said post game last night. He said. It's not bad, this, is it? For someone who won the chance to coach Sevilla in a raffle. Yeah. (laughs) And and, and he sort of made that point. And he made the point, um, I think, after the semi-final, that in a way, this was a demonstration to people that these coaches that people don't talk about, maybe it's actually about opportunity. And he's talked about how he spent a lot of his career going into games worrying, going into games wondering how you avoid defeat. And he said, apart from the first two or three games of Sevilla, when you come in a time of crisis and the the team's in in trouble near the bottom of the table, he said, apart from those first two or three games, I'm now turning up at games, and this is a new experience for him, thinking, we can win this. And and so it was in the end. Yeah, and actually, Lars, he he made the right changes, didn't he? Because Roman were better in the first half. If you're 1-0 down to Jose in a European final, that's bad news. Like Jose hadn't conceded a goal in a European final since... What Henrik Larsson in 2003. <laughs> Henrik Larsson's now 51 years old. And he, he, he brought on Suso and Lamella, who did change the game. Yeah, no, I thought they did. Um, I was really, I mean, we'll get back to Roma. I was surprised by how they almost sort of declared in the second half and was just sort of, now we're, we're done with this now. Because in the first half, when they were more assertive, Sevilla had trouble. And of course, some of it was Sevilla changing the game. But also, you know, the two central midfielders for Sevilla are both 35 years old. So so they're, they're, they're fine athletes for, for the age, of course. But when I thought when Roma were, were being a little bit more in their face, Sevilla didn't cope super well with that. But Roma sitting back, I thought, really played into Sevilla's hands. And of course, then bringing uh, Sousa and Lamella, who were both very lively, onto the field, uh, that, that worked really well for them in the second half. Severe, it felt to me, didn't really start playing until the board went up and said there were seven minutes left for the first half. And they played really well for those seven minutes and they hadn't really done anything until then. And I thought the player that made it happen in those seven minutes was Brian Hill. He sort of started getting going. He started getting lively. Of course, he's the one that goes off. And so I must admit, while I think we all expected Suso to come on, while we all thought Lamella would come on at some point, I didn't think Brian Hill would make way that early because I'd started to think at the, start, at the end of the first half, he was the one person you know that looked like, looked like he was going to make something happen. And it ends, Baz, with Gonzalo Montiel, who's had a good time uh, this year, hasn't he? And and getting another chance to go, I really want to, you know, I I want to do some winning penalties in a shootout again, please. Can I have another go? I think and I would imagine Anthony Taylor was delighted to get the opportunity to allow him to take that penalty again. 
I really do. Uh, there was encroachment by Rui uh, Patricio. And obviously Roma had already missed two penalties. So who's to say it would have made a huge difference if, if it hadn't been retaken. But what a, what a season for him. Scoring the winning penalty in a shootout for Argentina in the World Cup final and then doing it again for Sevilla at the second attempt in a Europa League final. That's a, that's a decent season by any standards, isn't it? And not being a starter for either of them. So this is a guy that didn't expect to play a, a major part in either of them. And about you last night, I felt the, the fact that the decisive spot kick was given back by the VAR somehow fit the whole night, didn't it? It was like, it's, like, it's perfect. Like, we're not finishing just yet. We've got, we've got one, more little, one more little refereeing moment for you. Just, to, just that this, this, this game that begins in May and doesn't finish till June. We've got one more little twist at the end for you. I liked as well, there was there was a line I saw from an Italian journalist last night that um, Sevilla got to maintain their perfect record of winning Europe, uh, Europa League finals. But in some sense, Jose could still walk away saying, I've never lost a Europa League final because <laughs> yeah. it was penalties, right? He didn't lose it. So it, somehow it was the perfect story for this to be resolved one way or another. Did, did, um, did he say he was robbed? Afterwards, Nikki, I, I sort of saw his a quotes, bit. but I was so sleepy. <laughs> just saw. I, I did, he didn't quite go sort of all rubber. Right. He did. He did give it that Anthony Taylor was refereeing like a Spaniard, you know, saying that he was to do, which I, I don't really know what 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 that even means. Uh, sorry, sorry, Nikki. He he literally said. <laughs> did he say the word robber? Sorry. <laughs> he said it in a curious curious way. Um, so so what he did is he he talked about um, Anthony Taylor. He talked about refereeing like a Spaniard. He talked about. Sadly, we, we we this isn't surprising, or we expected this, or something like that. He said, but in a European game, it's hard to take. And I think what he's saying, why we expected this, but in a European game, it's hard to take, is what he's essentially saying is this has happened to us all year. The, 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 the time when he actually used the word Rob directly was he was complaining about the club. And obviously, Nicky, you'll know this far better than me. And the idea that, that he was expressing was, why is it always me that has to defend the boys? And he basically said, I'm tired of being the one that has to come out and say we've been robbed. So... Obviously, he's linking it to Nile tonight, if maybe not automatically saying it. But I think we know that he thinks that because, of course, there was then some footage later of him in the car park waiting to speak to Rossetti and basically and basically sort of saying effing disgrace, effing disgrace. Effing. I mean, he did a drug on him, basically. Yeah. I mean, there's echoes here, isn't there, of Antonio Conte and his sort of a monologue he had not long before leaving Tottenham where he was saying, you know, why is, you know, in England we're not defended, it's me who's got to come out and do this. And and it's true, right? Like at different clubs in Italy, there are directors who come out and, and speak more to the press than perhaps they have at Roma. But also the reason he's always the one defending them from being robbed is because he always claims that they've been robbed when they haven't been you know like yeah. and because he wants to be as well doesn't he yeah he likes like, that role. I, you know I, I don't think Anthony Taylor had a perfect night it was quite a difficult night because there was a lot going on but I think the biggest decisions he got right didn't he I mean the the VAR taking back the penalty was was a good decision I thought and and I didn't think the handball was was enough for handball to be a penalty and no exactly well that and also regardless of right or wrong if you look at it from the point of view of you know who does it benefit, regardless of whether it's right or wrong, you've got a penalty each, so that's level. Frankly, I think Rakitic has fouled on the Roma goal. I think he's pushed pushed directly off the ball and, and they score. So, so you've got three big decisions. Well, there's two gone Roma's way and one gone the other way. Whether or not they're right, obviously, is another issue. I, I, I've watched the, the Sevilla penalty three or four times and I think it's both 
a dive and a foul, if you sort of mean. So I don't really know where I stand on it. Um, but he just gets the ball. He just gets the ball. But he? he definitely takes the shin as well, doesn't he? He sort of he sort of does yeah. both. And I must admit, I honestly don't know what it is. But to be fair, well, is to be fair to Mourinho a good way to open any statement? <laughs> um, anyway, to be fair to Mourinho, what he was saying post-game as well, he said, and this comes back to that idea of refereeing like a Spaniard. He was saying, let's not even talk about this big decisions. Let's talk about the whole thing. And he said, and we, anyone who's been in football a long time, anyone who's played the game, could see right from the start what was happening. I was thinking, could we? Uh, I don't know. I mean, I could see some things were happening. I'm not sure if that was one of them. Lars, there's a question from Matt. Says that, is it time to start calling out Mourinho's behaviour or is it box office? If the coach of a kid's team acted this way, would that be entertaining in surrounding the ref over and over just harmless shit housing, Or should it be just condemned... I do feel we reached some sort of peak, sort of divorced dad grassroots football thing when he was shouting, calling out the referee in the car park <laughs> afterwards. I mean, that, 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 that's proper sort of, yeah, uh, man and Sunday league man who's frustrated with how, the way his life is going type of behavior. Um, I, I find myself, I, the, the, sh- the, uh, the shithousing is often a guilty pleasure. And as I said a few weeks back, I'm sort of increasingly more concerned with what's fun than what's good. And it can be fun. But, but there's also something just slightly pathetic about it all in the game where, again, I think he just got just got the approach wrong, really. I thought that Roma were in a really good position in this game in the first half against Sevilla. Then they did the Mourinho thing and sat back and didn't play anymore, and it really played into Sevilla's hands. And there were no real... I think the only serious refereeing mistake in this was not sending off more people from the Roma bench. I mean, that, that, that was the obvious mistake the referee made. And then you come out afterwards and try to make it about the referee because you couldn't get it done. Just pathetic behavior really and we talk about this a lot about the culture of abuse of referees I mean Mourinho didn't invent it but he certainly isn't helping and um, I I think you you referenced the sort of a thing Conte said recently I always come back to the other famous Conte monologue more specifically about Mourinho where he says uh, in the past he was a little man in many circumstances is a little man in the present and for sure he will be a little man in the future I mean that that seems to have pretty much nailed it Um, not that Conte is uh, a titan of ethics and uh, and, uh, himself but I just found it grim, really. I mean, I, maybe I'm just bitter because I, I had to rush home from the dog park to sit, watch this game and then it was all bad and then Mourinho behaves like, like he does. But I don't see I don't, I don't see the charm of it. I saw quite a few tweets yesterday. Ah, Jose, at it again. I think it, help, I think it helps when you basically never have to watch him or his team. Uh, and then you, you sort of read headlines about how he's in trouble for, for heckling uh, teenagers or wearing a wire or all this sort of nonsense he's gotten up to. But but it is just really wearing. I quite like watching football. I I, I find the sort of constant sideshow of Mourinho very uh, not as charming as as other people find it. Well, it's slightly odd question to ask: Should we start calling out Mourinho's behaviour? We've been calling it out for twenty years. I mean, our, our first encounter well, certainly my first encounter was when his Porto team absolutely disgraced themselves in the UEFA Cup final against. Celtic in 2003 with the fouling, the time-wasting, their petulance. That's tr- that's two decades ago. It's got worse since. And in the meantime, you know, we called him out when he forced Chelsea physio Eva Carnero out of a job and was had to, to settle privately with her on the steps of Croydon Court uh, for discrimination. We called him out when... The Swedish referee Anders Frisk was 
forced into retirement after a Chelsea game against Barcelona in which Didier Drogba was sent off. Drogba and Marina were both very critical of him. And while Drogba subsequently apologised, UEFA found that Marino wasn't directly responsible for forcing Frisk into retirement. Um, so, you know, we've, we've called him out for years. And I think what went on last night, at the risk of turning into swoony Victorian lady with a fit of the veil, it was disgraceful. If every team... And every back and their backroom staff behaved like Roma did last night. I would completely lose all interest in football very quickly, and I don't think I'd be alone. Yeah, I couldn't help finding it some of it. You know, I, I, I maybe I grew last. I don't get. To, I don't watch Roma every week. When Roma scored, I like when Jose's sort of wandering off doing something. I'm like, oh, I quite enjoy watching that. And he was he was an old man who like, walked out his front door and discovered there was a street carnival. And there's like, what are all these kids doing <laughs> running around, and sort of grumbling to himself, and then getting back in the house again? I mean, I suppose, and yet, Nicky, like he is he has won. He sort of brought the Roma fans together, right? You know, in winning the Conference League. I think the Stadio Olimpico was full, wasn't it, yesterday? Like he, that is a power he has, and and. God, we're just talking about him. Like, there's lots of players, there's lots of stories, and um, I mean, maybe that's our fault rather than than his. Look, I mean, there's, there's a phrase in Italian that gets brought up semi often: uh, "La finale non si gioca si vince." You don't play a final, you win it. And like, I think that that mentality, which you can attribute as a very Italian mentality, I think honestly, like, step aside from the fact that none of us have a horse in this race, that we're journalists. If you're a fan, that's all you care about, actually. Like, all you care about when your team goes to a European final is, did we win it or not? Like, how it how it happens is going to get forgotten. If you win it, you're going to enjoy that trophy forever. And Roma, again, I, I think there's sometimes a disconnect in how they're perceived internationally, weirdly, with how they're perceived by their own fans even sometimes. They are a big club. They're, of course, a huge club that have had huge players, but they haven't won a lot. And they had never won a UEFA trophy like the Conference League last season. I know it's only the Conference League, but it's still a European major trophy that they won because Mourinho was there. And he then took them to another final. So I don't think it's that shocking, actually, that fans want to get behind the guy who's bringing them this success. That's that's what football fans not the neutrals, the ones who are following their team want is their team to succeed. Of course, everyone feels happier when their team is doing it in a beautiful way and playing everyone off the park. But first and foremost, I think fans want to win games. Now, of course, he didn't win this one, so it's much easier to sort of turn around and and and, and be critical. And and he deserves criticism. I completely agree with Lars's assessment of, of things he got wrong in this game. I think that, strangely, for all that I think Sevilla did dominate a lot of this game Roma had the better chances and I think if Roma had had the courage to go for the jugular after taking the lead they, they might have done the job they might have finished it off and I also think it's fair to sort of acknowledge that this team has been it's one really technical excellent player is Paolo Dybala and and without him there's, there's a huge drop-off and Andrea Bellotti had that chance which he couldn't take because with the best one in the world he's 2023 Andrea Bellotti I mean he's had better years in his career when he was younger but he hasn't scored goals consistently in a long time he's a big lump and <laughs> um, Tammy Abraham hasn't been scoring yeah. goals consistently this season there aren't players there that are sort of that are really sort of in great form for the most part and 
getting this team actually with how it's looked in Serie A lately to a European final is a feat. Now, of course, turn around and look at Sevilla getting to a European final while 11th in the league on their third manager of the season. It's even more extraordinary. A word on on Sevilla, because there, there are lots of nice stories. You know, Navas to have won this when he was, what, 17 in, what, 06, was it? And, you know, he's still, he doesn't look quite as young, but his piercing eyes make him look younger than, you know, the other old men who were on the pitch there. Rakitic was great. Acampos is this sort of player I didn't know a lot about, but I think it was Lars or I can't remember someone saying he's got about eight lungs, like just never stops. And and Bono's, one of his penalty saves was unbelievable, actually, in that shootout. There was a lovely moment in the in a press conference after the game. I assume you were talking about the one that hits the post. And 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 Bono Bono was asked, did you sorry, sorry to ask you this, did you actually save that one? And he said, um, if you watch the footage, I think you'll see. And then him and the manager sort of have a bit of a giggle. And then some journalist from the back shouts, yes, you saved it. And he said, well, you know, that's for you to say. And then and, and sort of really enjoyed himself. He, he is curious because it's switched, switched round. So Sevilla have Marco Dimitrovic and Yassin Bono as their goalkeepers. Now, in theory, second choice is playing in the Europa League. And the first choice goal he plays in La Liga. When Mendelibar came... He swapped them around. He made Marko Dimitrovic, who wasn't first-choice goalkeeper, the first-choice goalkeeper in the league. He's the goalie he had when he was at Eibar. And the relationship was really, really good. And, and, and Mendele Bar admitted that he gets the teammates going, ah, oh, you, you and your sort of essentially saying, you and your bald lover. You know, this, you're putting this guy in the team because you love him. And, and Bono loses his place. And Mendele Bar's admitted that Bono had found that quite difficult to accept, that he'd lost his place in La Liga. But of course, in return for losing your place in La Liga, you become the second-choice goalkeeper, she become the first choice goalkeeper in the Europa League. It's turned out brilliant for him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's turned out, I mean, poor old Dimitrovic is thinking, you bastard, Can I've continued being the substitute. Can I just ask one question? It's sort of a tactic quite boring question. But um, you interviewed Mendelober not too long ago, Sid, and he basically said that he only has one tactic, get the ball out wide, send in crosses, and try and score. Why, why, if... And he said, you know, we we are the easiest team on paper to beat because everyone knows how we're going to play all the time. And that's how they played last night. And that's where the goal came from. Why can't teams stop them? I, I think because there there is this whole kind of storyline around Mendel Bar as being Mr. Simple. You know, get it wide, get it in the box, get it wide again, get it in the box again, get it wide, get it in the box again, go direct, don't piss around at the back, everything's simple. And I think one of, the, one of the answers to your question is that actually it's not quite as simple as it looks, that there's a lot more work behind it than it looks like. But this narrative persists. But one of the reasons this narrative persists is precisely what you've been saying. Because the person who most does this, the person who most kind of talks down Mendelibar, the person who most says, oh, this is just easy, really, is Mendelibar himself. And that's something <laughs> about the personality, the way he talks. He, he kind of removes that. He kind of removes that from himself. I think that's a big part of, of, of the reason why. And, and, you know, that's it. If you look at, for example, his, his A-bar team, the, the statistics will show you, you know, those st- statistics, for example, about the, 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 average, the average height of your defensive line um, was higher than anyone else in La Liga. You know, they pushed, squeezed the team really, really high. Yes, it was relatively simple. And he had Brian Hill then. It was over the wing. Get Brian Hill to go at people. Get someone go outside. Get the cross in the box. If not a huge amount of precision, get a huge amount of volume of attacks. And I suppose the answer is, why doesn't anyone stop this? Because it's not that easy to do. And I suppose the other simple thing is, if you're putting the ball in the box a lot, that's not something that's easy to stop. 
you know, it's, maybe it's something easy to head away, but it's not something easy to stop the, the, the ball actually going in. And, and I think that's part of it. There's also an emotional side to this. And again, it's Mendelebar downplaying himself. But there was a line the other day where he was asked, you know, how do you explain, how do you explain this, this turnaround? And, um, and he said, well, because these guys are fucking brilliant. These guys are great players. And, and they shouldn't have been where they were before. And in a way, all I've done to them is turn up and say, lads, you know how to do this. On you go. Oh, now, again, that's... The Spanish Harry Redknapp. Well, there we are. There is a risk of him sounding like a terrible dinosaur. But, and and there's, a, there's a degree of that, but there's a sort of a charm that goes with it as well. Uh, but, but I think one of the reasons for that is that he himself projects that. So he sort of undoes himself, but that's part of the way that... One of the reasons why he's successful. All right, Sid. You can go away now. Thanks for your time, mate. Thank you. Cheerio. Uh, that'll do for part one. We'll uh, look ahead to the FA Cup final in part two. Ich würde dir ja ein Spicy Nugget abgeben, aber, aber heiße Ware teilt man nicht. Ist klar. Hol auch du dir nur für dich die Spicy Chicken McNuggets. My Nuggets, my Rolls. Nur für kurze Zeit und solange der Vorrat reicht in teilnehmenden Restaurants bei McDonalds. Welcome to part two of the Guardian Football Weekly. Uh, we have an exciting announcement to make, Barry. We have written... And I'll, and we have written an annual, the Guardian Football Weekly annual, including some great... Oh, it's not the Guardian Football Weekly annual, Max. This is the announcement, and you've already got the title wrong. <laughs> <laughs> it's called the Guardian Football Weekly Book. Ah, oh, book. It's a book. Yeah, my apologies. You know, I can see how you might forget that. <laughs> is it a book? Is it? And I think it just goes to show how much work you put. Oh, you did absolutely fuck all. That's such a lie. Such a lie. Let's okay. Let's start again. Jonathan Wilson has written a book. (laughs) No, Jonathan Wilson has passively aggressively forced us into helping him write a book. Although he did write sizable tracts of said book. Mm, Anyway, it's got some great content. Max and Barry's blind date. Mark Langdon's world of meat. Johnny Lou's you are the ref. Ben Fisher's guide to car parks. Uh, Philippe O'Claire's no-holds-barred account of everything that's wrong with football, redacted an exclusive David Squires cartoon, the true story of the great betrayal, amongst many other things. And you can learn about all the panellists too. Um, If you pre-order on the Guardian Bookshop, you'll get 20% off. It is out on the 28th of September. So a great stocking filler. Um, You can pre-order the link in the show notes. We'll all tweet out the link for it. Or you can go to this. They've really worked on a really easy website for you. Guardianbookshop.com slash the hyphen football hyphen weekly hyphen book hyphen 9781783352906. So anybody, could everybody please buy a book? Because I think if we sell a million copies, it'll be worth uh, all the work that we put in. But it does look great. And uh, Well, I think we need to start. I think we need to sell about a million copies for any of us involved to start making money out of it. Correct. Wait, hang on. We can make money out of it. I didn't know. No, no, no. Not, not you. <laughs> not you. Not you. I wrote the page. <laughs> that is true. Uh, anyway, uh, please, everyone, buy it. Uh, it will be a wonderful read for the rest of your lives and uh, certainly easier to read than anything else Jonathan Wilson has written. The FA Cup final, Manchester City versus Manchester United. Is this game, Lars? This, it feels to me like it's for Manchester United to stop Man City winning the treble. Is that sort of the biggest part of this whole game, isn't it? It is, isn't it? I mean, they have, of course, already 
lifted one trophy of the season, Manchester United. They made the top four. There is a sense that this season has been uh, progress. Winning the FA Cup, of course, would be a lovely sort of capper to that. But but let's be honest, it is <laughs> it is primarily about stopping Man City winning the treble. I think I think that's uh, entirely fair to say because, of course. Uh, that's one of the more famous achievements of the modern Manchester United is winning the treble. They don't want anyone else to do it. It's it's understandable. Can they can they stop them, Baz? They can. City are beatable. We've seen this this season. Brentford beat them twice. Um, I was sort of thinking to myself, you know, how how can Manchester United win this game? And I devised a plan. But unfortunately, my plan involves them fielding at least 15 <laughs> players, and that's not allowed <laughs> uh, for all, all the things they need to do and the running around they need to do. The one thing I will say is that as maligned as he is, and for all that he hasn't been a great success since arriving at Manchester United, I think that in the unlikely event of Manchester United winning this game, Bout Veghorst will will make headlines. He will be an integral part of any win. I think his astonishing work rate will be crucial. He may not start. He probably won't start. Yeah, I I think this could be Weghorst's time to shine oh, in the United shirt. It would be great if, if if that's what happened. I mean Well it would be really great in in so far as for the first time in quite some time I will sound like I know what I'm talking about. Yeah, it's, it's quite a bold predict with all the players at your disposal picking about Veghorst as well to be the hero is, <laughs> is quite is bold isn't it um it seems so hard to look past city the way they're they're playing Nicky. i mean do you do you give manchester united or inter more chance of stopping the treble god that's an interesting uh way of framing it. i mean I, I think it's worth reminding ourselves united did beat city in january we're not talking about ancient history um and and it was sort of oh, that feels does feel like ancient history <laughs> I, i'd completely forgotten <laughs> yeah, me that. too i brought up brentford i, I forgot united had actually beat and you know it was it was not like a a total smash and grab either was it i mean they, they definitely like gave up the, all of the ball but city didn't have an overwhelming number of chances in that game and 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 that is a model for beating city it's not necessarily a model that you can clap your hands and say, right, we'll just do that again and, and it'll be easy. But that wasn't like a, as, a, as I remember it, that wasn't like a, a terrible City team or anything. It had Haaland and it had De Bruyne and it was it was a, a strong City team and they, they still beat them. Um, so it, it's, it's not impossible. And I think probably the answer, much though, I would love to believe in Max in Baz's well, Weghorst prediction. The answer in my mind probably does go through the same players that the goals came from that game, which is Fernandez and Rashford, who is, is where you imagine... United goals coming from and I think that's really sort of one of the the big issues isn't it when you look at um, United's attack and you're thinking of then they're not going to dominate a game against City that's that's 100% um, in my mind and it's completely the same uh, question for Inter Inter are not going to dominate a game against City and Inter are very aware they're not going to dominate a game against City you then look for how what's your path to winning a game and um, and and I think that Inter when I look at them, honestly, do have paths to winning a game. The paths to winning a game revolve around the fact that Lautaro Martinez is playing some of his best football in an Inter shirt right now and, and is is scoring brilliantly. And when he's on song, I think he's capable of being really, really top tier in the world kind of striker. His problem is he goes in these long droughts, but when he's when he's on, he's brilliant. And you've got 
depth that's allowed in to get through the season less knackered than some teams who've played so many games because they've been able to switch in Jekko and, and, and Lukaku alongside Lautaro because they've been able to have this midfield where because Chalanoglu was playing so well Brozovic didn't play as often as, as he would have to and and you know when you've had injuries and, and Mkhitaryan and, and and players going out then you can even sort of bring Brozovic off the bench they did in the semi-final so Inter I, I can see I can see they're out, um, but I think that both of these teams uh, are in the same position, which is City are better than us. City are going to have more of the ball than us, um, and so how do you navigate that reality and and still find a way to win the game? And yeah, to bring it back to the FA Cup final, I think probably you're asking Fernandez or Rashford to do your your moments of magic for you. So the the sort of metaphor that I think Jonathan Wilson of, of this Paris has used at least once. Uh, possibly more than once, is that Man City are like the Death Star. They're this sort of uh, terrifying uh, machine of doom that has a, a fatal flaw. There is the exhaust port. You know, you can't get at them on the counterattack. My, my concern this spring is that I, I worry that they've been more like the second Death Star, is that they've kind of covered up the things and you, it's not that easy to get to the fatal flaw and that to get past them, whoever... Uh, are to beat them has to form some sort of informal alliance with the Ewoks at some point to get help. And this is where I can't find a footballing equivalent for the metaphor. I'm not sure who the Ewoks would be and how that would work. Uh, because they do seem to have closed off this sort of counterattack thing uh, after... Is that Vekhorst the... an Ewok? Is that what, is that what I'm hearing last at all. Like he's, he's much much more of a Wookiee than an Ewok. Maybe Garnacho, like he's quite sort of speedy. Maybe he's the Ewok. Uh, but because the counter-attacking thing, the Man United game you mentioned, I'm just kind of looking at, the, reminding, re-reminding myself, this was before Guardiola had struck upon this sort of genius little change in tactic. You know, Cancelo was still there. And they hadn't started doing this sort of uh, John Stones hybrid center half type of thing, which has really just made everything come together in the spring, and it's uh, it's made everything work for them. And they just it's just so difficult to get past Man City right now. I'm not sure, but if uh, if Baz is shouting about Weghorst, let, let me uh, fly the flag for Garnacho. I think the the pace of Garnacho uh, on the, could be something that could unsettle Man City possibly. Do um. But inherently don't want any team to win the treble, right? Because you want trophies to be shared around. You don't want a team to dominate. But would it be bad if Man City won the treble in pure footballing terms, Barry? Like, I didn't want Manchester United to do it, but perhaps once every quarter of a century, it's okay for a team to win everything because it's like a story that we can go back to and sort of talk about. Um, No, I don't think it would be good because they're a state-owned club. I mean, and I agree with you completely, but I don't want state-owned clubs to monopolise all the tournaments because that is obviously bad for football. It's a good answer. It's a, perhaps a silly question, but but uh, that's why I sort of tried to caveat it in, in terms of pure footballing terms. You know, here is a brilliant football team who probably deserve it. Lars, yeah, I know. I'd, I'd throw in being no no friend of the state-backed clubs either. I worry more about the fact that they've won uh, five out of six Premier League titles and that they regularly get to 90 plus points. Uh, I think that's caused, that's creating a sort of, I mean, are we the Bundesliga? Question mark is the sort of uh, the, the territory we're getting towards now. That they also get it right in the cup competitions. I feel like that's always, there's always more variance there. And, and that's maybe, uh, that's not something that worries me quite, quite as much. Man City have been one of the best teams in Europe so many years now that they're kind of due 
uh, a European trophy on top of it, and they've won a bunch of cups. So, I mean, that's not... It is what it is. They're probably the best team in Europe right now. I, I think it's 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 sort of when you talk about just like the narratives of these things and you're talking about United trying to deny them the treble, it's sort of fun in a narrative sense that you go from United, the, the, the team that's trying to stop you in treble, to Inter, who of course have also won a treble, the only Italian team to have won a treble, and who um, there's this other curious sort of little piece of, of, of European history that Milan is the only city that's got two different teams that won the European Cup. And so if you beat Inter, you make Manchester the second city that's won with two different teams that won the European Cup. So it does feel like a series of boss battles that that, that have been lined up in sort of a, a narrative sense for City to get there. Um, who is M. Bison in all of this? Uh, uh, look, uh, uh, away from the final, uh, Man City have opened talk with Chelsea over a deal for Matteo Kovacic as the Chelsea summer clear out begins um that's you sounded like it was like a positive um noise you made there Lars I I just think it's kind of interesting I can imagine him being the sort of this season's Akanji in the sense that he's a player you don't think of as being a sort of spectacular footballer but you could completely see him fitting in at Manchester City you know he's very he's very tidy on the ball he's a clever footballer he's quite good at a lot of things uh, I, I can imagine him slotting into that Man City midfield and being a very useful player for them yeah for sure Meanwhile the Telegraph reporting that Mason Mount has agreed personal terms to join Manchester United I'm sort of surprised he's leaving Chelsea Baz I'm not there, there's quite a long list of Chelsea players heading for the exit door this summer, and most of them are homegrown, and they need to be sold because uh, any money that made in their transfers is total profit, and Chelsea desperately need to balance the books. Yeah, I don't know why. I don't, maybe just because he he feels like sort of heir apparent to your sort of Terry's and Lampard's in terms of how Chelsea he is and you know even if all the sense is is to, to move him on I just sense that that is a if it doesn't if he could be really good for Manchester United. he's a really good footballer yes Lars but isn't this also a case of him being uh I mean victim's totally the wrong word but it's a consequence of the shifts of, of regimes there you know he has seen his teammates uh, sign massive new contracts in the sort of latter stages of the Abramovich era. Now there's been a change of ownership and the new owners want to bring down the wage uh, bill a little bit and sign longer contracts on not as good terms. And, and so suddenly he's being offered money that's considerably less than uh, some of the teammates he has were, were offered. And he's got one year left on his deal and he's kind of thinking, well, if I can make more money elsewhere and find a club that appreciates me, why not explore the options? It, it makes sense in, in that regard. I've had a direct message from uh, Barca Jim, friend of the pod, uh, parental advisory here, everybody. I'm fucking holding you personally responsible if Ange goes to Spurs. I'd increase security at Football Weekly live gigs if I were you. I will never fucking <laughs> forgive you. Uh, Jim, of course, a Celtic fan. Um, uh, yeah, he's emerging as the preferred candidate for the vacant Spurs job. I mean, he's not the first preferred candidate. Uh, Sky Sports News previously reported that he was on the list of prospects alongside Roberto De Zerbi and Marco Silva. There was always Arna Slot. I've forgotten about 10 others. Nagelsmann, uh, Garcia. Um, he spoke before Celtic's final leave game of the season, asked if he thought about his future beyond the summer. No, because I know that's not how football works. I've been asked about these things plenty of times. What's important for me is the here and now. I've never planned anything in my football career. You can't, as a manager, chart a course for yourself to be in a certain position in a certain time. 
I think, Barry, he would be perfect for Tottenham. So do I, but it's interesting to see that an awful lot of Tottenham fans don't, do not want him, and they don't want him for the same reason that an awful lot of Celtic fans who now adore him and worship him, I think Barca Jim among them, didn't want him when he was linked with the Celtic job. He's proved all those Celtic fans wrong, whether or not he'll get the opportunity to prove the the naysayers among the ranks of Tottenham supporters wrong remains to be seen. I think it is hilarious that so many Tottenham fans think uh, he's beneath their club. You know, after the the years stars of success they've endured and the banter era of Marino and Conte, for them to 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 look sniffy and think, oh well he's he's only done really well in Japan and with Australia and in um the Scottish Premiership, he's not good enough for us is they are deluded. <laughs> no, I agree. And also if if after the the utter misery of the Conte and Mourinho eras haven't taught you that a big name and a shiny CV isn't always the answer to everything, then you're never going to learn that, ever. I don't. I haven't watched Celtic as closely as others, of course. Whenever I've seen them under uh, Ange, I've thought this is a team that hangs together well, where people know their jobs, that have a very clear tactic, a very clear identity. And whenever I've heard him speak about anything, I think he comes across incredibly well like an incredibly solid guy so on the basis of that alone i'd be i'd be cautiously optimistic if he went to tottenham yeah and if he want and he took the job he'd actually want to be there which is a marked improvement from the previous two managers i just to agree with you like i think that's like such a um, like a, it's like an obvious point but a very profoundly true point like i do think like having a manager who comes in who's like seeing this as, as as a step they're excited to make in their career rather than a, I'm just going to go there and like put up with it because I think I'm more important than it. Of course that makes a difference to how good of a job they do because they're people, not robots. Yeah, uh, that'll do for part two. Part three, uh, we'll do a bit of Serie A. Welcome to part three of the Guardian Football Weekly. Uh, Nicky, talk to us about Luciano Spalletti. Uh, he just wants a rest. It's quite refreshing to hear someone <laughs> say that. I mean, I, I, com- I completely agree with him. Me too. He, he just wants a rest. I, I do wonder if he would want a rest as much if his employer hadn't turned around and said, we're going to keep paying you the same amount that you're getting paid now, which happens to be less than half what the best managers in the league are getting, even though you've just won as the Serie A title for the first time in 33 years. I wonder if his, his motivation to rest might have felt different if he felt like his his boss was a bit more respectful of, of what he'd achieved at the club. Um, but yes, um, it seems very much that because uh, Napoli have taken their option for um, a year extension on his contract, that Spalletti is not especially excited to carry on right now. And um, De Laurentiis is going to not force him to carry on. And so we'll get this very, very Italian situation of manager goes off on gardening leave for a while unless someone comes in and and stumps up a, a, a an amount of money that makes it worth releasing him but I mean look I'm certain this year has been extremely draining for him Luciano Spalletti is a very high energy 
character in everything that he does. And he has achieved something that was extraordinary. Um, the relationship between him and De Laurentiis hasn't been particularly easy for a while, even before this season. So I, I think he probably is quite happy to go back to his farm in Tuscany and, and put his feet up for a little bit. Oh, that's so idyllic doesn't it? What do you think happens to Napoli now? Does it feel like a good time to go in there? You sort of think it, it isn't. I think there's so much unknown about this this summer in, in with Napoli. Obviously, um, De Laurentiis has come out quite bullish already about we don't need to sell Victor Osimhen and all of this, but you just don't know how this summer's going to play out. There's going to be a market for Osimhen and um, the reality is that De Laurentiis has, has made aggressive noises before and, and still sold players like Cavani. When Cavani left, he said he didn't want to sell him, but when the offer's right, the offer's right. Um, there isn't um, a release clause for Osimhen um, that's so easily triggered, but there is, for instance, for Kim Min Jae in defence. So there's, there's going to be departures from that team and there's a manager that's leaving. Um, you'd have thought there will be some money to, to reinvest and at least any money raised from sales can be reinvested because they're actually quite a tight ship now. They tend to, to run at, at, with their books fairly balanced outside of COVID when everyone went a bit wonky. Um, and of course, they've qualify for the Champions League, won the league against, they're going to have good prize money this season. But it's it's a very um, uncertain situation. Of course it is, because you're saying goodbye to your manager and you don't know how many of the players that just won your league are going to go. Can I ask about Juve? They obviously had their 15 points uh, taken away, then given back, and 10 points taken away. Is that the end of it? Or do they get the 10 back and then it's five? And then <laughs> zero, like what happened? It happen? seems very much like that'll be the end of that story. So of course, this is incredibly complicated and longer than you want me to get into right now, but there have been parallel cases going on for them. This case, they will assess the 10-point penalty is the, the plus valenza, the capital gains case, um, in which they're basically Oh, right. Of, it's not connected to the 15-point no, no, one. No, that is. That's the 15-point penalty. The 15-point penalty was assessed for, effectively, um, the accusation is that they... Um, deliberately overinflated the numbers on their accounts by putting false values on players. That's the plus valenza, I guess, thread of the case. And... That's what they were charged on by the sporting courts. And that is what they got, a 15-point penalty that was then suspended and then eventually reassessed as a 10-point penalty. Um, and in theory, they could still appeal that back to the Italian Olympic Committee. Um, but it seems they're not going to. And part of the reason that I would say they're not going to is because there was a separate thread of accusation against them, which relates to wages deferred during COVID pandemic. Now, Juventus put out this statement, which went to the stock market, they are list on the stock market saying that they were going to defer a certain amount of player wages. And again, the accusation, this is ongoing in legal courts, is that they actually didn't uh, give up that much of their wage. They gave up one month's wages instead of three months wages. And that's a legal case that will still play out because misleading the markets is, is a crime. But the sporting aspect of that trial has now basically been resolved with a plea bargain with the event is saying okay we'll accept a great big fine and then we'll call that the end of it and effectively it feels like what's happened is that a truce has been reached between the Italian Football Federation and Juventus where the where Juventus said look we're not going to appeal again against this 10 point penalty we're going to let that stand we're going to accept we're not in the Champions League this season but we want to resolve this wage case situation now so it doesn't drag into next season that that's basically the point we've got to slightly less complicated but probably more fun yeah, the Serie C playoff. I don't know if you've seen this, Nikki. Have you? After the Lecco president, uh, Lecco, yeah. the Lecco president. Thank you. Um, tell, tell us about him. Yeah, um, I, I, I don't have all the details on this story. I'm, I'm really sorry, but yes, coming onto the pitch in his mobility scooter to to, to harangue the referee at, at at full time was was quite a visual. It's an amazing video. Yeah. Well, he apparently he took he apparently according to uh, a few people on Twitter and there's a video of it. He 
He took to the field with his walking stick to confront the referee. Uh, he was sent off. Then he came back on on his mobility scooter to give the uh, opposition keeper some verbals. So he's just a man on a mobility scooter just pootling around the pitch with a security guard near him. Uh, you know, that'd, that'd be Jose in 20 years. <laughs> it's his glove. He could do what he wants. Um, uh, Serena Wiegmann announced the England women's squad, of course, that depleted by injury. I think Beth England, the Spurs striker coming in, is sort of the big story for that. No, Steph Horton. Uh, Robin Cowan is on the show on Monday. We will talk about that in uh, detail there. Uh, good news uh, from Luton Town. Uh, they tweeted that uh, Tom Lockyer uh, will be allowed to leave hospital and return home. He, of course, remember he collapsed earlier on in that playoff final and uh, watched his team uh, be victorious from his hospital bed with his family. It's an amazing photo. And uh, to Mark Clattenburg, who tweets, Contenders ready. Gladiators 3-2-1. Looking forward to working with all the contenders and gladiators for the new series of, of the show. I hope to do John Anderson proud. Do we think Baz Clattenburg for Anderson is a good... It's not a bad... <laughs> That, that, that works, doesn't it? I loved Gladiators growing up. And then they rebooted it. And I actually knew right. one of the... A Wooga. <laughs> I knew oh, one wow. of the Gladiators in the reboot in the 2000s. But what I really want Which to know one? is whether uh, Spartan, Rod Bradley also Spartan. Spartan, yeah. right. Um, but I, um, I really want to know if Wolf, who was like the old man when they did it the first time, and even Molder Man when they rebooted it, I want to know if Wolf is coming back for, for one more go. Well, that's a good question. The Wolf Man. Uh, he's sort of a, he was a... You know, he was good with the crowd, but he was a sort of a love-hate figure, wasn't he, Wolf? Uh, I'm just trying to find out how old Wolf is. He's probably in his um, 60s. Barry, you don't, you, you don't seem moved by it. Michael Van Wick is his name. Uh, he's now 70. 70. So, <laughs> that's a stretch to have, Wolf. <laughs> he doesn't have quite as much hair. It says here, uh, in 1994... Uh, Wolf played one match reserve team game for Gillingham, playing for 73 minutes against Cambridge United reserves before going off in- injured. The match attracted a crowd 10 times the average for the club's reserve team games. After Gladiators ended, he moved to New Zealand and opened a chain of gyms. So if you go to a gym that is run by Wolf the Gladiator, and you're one of our Kiwi listeners, please let us know. Uh, Aaron says, Hi Max, I stumbled across your name in the references section of an academic paper I was reading this week for my PhD studies. The study I was reading is called There He Goes, The Influence of Sports Journalism of Fabrizio Romano on Twitter and Its Implications for Professionalism, published in the respected academic journal called Journalism and Media by Dr. Simon McKennis. One of the references of the study is a piece that you wrote for The Guardian in February called An Agenda Against Your Football Club, If Only We Were That Competent. It looks quite cute seeing Rushton M and Rushton 2023 in a fancy academic article. It makes you seem like a tenured professor at an Ivy League university. Dr. Rushton. Oh, well, you never know. Could happen, couldn't it? And Brett says, Hi, Max. Last night I had a dream that I was watching you on TV as the new Chelsea manager. Things had not gone well, apparently as you were being hounded by a baying mob while frantically leaping amongst blue plastic seats while the camera struggled to keep up. I remember thinking, how did Max get that job and why on earth did he take it? He seemed so nice as the screaming hordes closed in. I never usually remember my dreams. Perhaps it's time we all had a break. See you in six weeks. Says <laughs> That's very weird. If you are dreaming about any panellist, you are allowed to take six weeks off. Uh, anyway, uh, that'll do for today. Uh, thanks, Lars. Thank you, Max. Thanks, Nikki. Thanks, Max. Cheers, Baz. Thank you. 
Football Weekly is produced by Joel Grove with Arif Islam. Our executive producer is Christian Bennett. We'll be back on Monday. This is The Guardian.